that point, he was super competitive. His way was always the best way. He always wanted to drive. So did I. He knew the best route to take. Well, so did I. I could go on and on about all the similarities that went on between us. But when I realized this to be the case, I, I began taking note of how his forwardness and his assertiveness and his self-confidence was like a window into my own character. I began to recognize that he was just like me, wired the same as me, and that's why he got under my skin and irked me so much. And then <laughs> I began asking the Lord to change me. I began praying for him and for me. And God showed me something about myself that summer that I didn't like. And by his grace, I began learning how to serve others. I began learning how to demonstrate Christ to others and how to love others. How's that? Okay, great. So last week, we began looking at the story of Jacob's transformation in Genesis chapter 28. And now as we come to chapter 29, the the drama of Jacob's long transformation is unfolding before us. The story tracks his time in Haran for 20 years. He spends 20 years under the oppressive hand of a master manipulator, of a deceiver, a guy by the name of Laban. Jacob has been a man on the run. He's running from his past. He's running from sin. He's running from a bad relationship with his father and with his brother who wants to kill him. And in the midst of his running away he runs into God. And during this encounter in chapter 28, God promises something to Jacob. It's a theophany. He has this dream. And in verse 15 of chapter 28, God says to Jacob, behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I think we could say that Christians have a similar promise. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, when Jesus says to his disciples, as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And listen, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In some ways, we see Jacob's story paralleling ours. We see the commission in one sense to Jacob, the promise to Jacob as as somewhat of of a promise in the way that Christ promises us his presence. Well, in Jacob's story, we see how God uses the crucible of life to transform his character. So many things happen in his life, and we read it, and we're like, oh, my goodness. We realize and we recognize with hindsight as we look upon the story of Jacob that God is doing a deep character transforming work in his life because Jacob meets a man who's just like him. In fact, a man who even says to him after meeting him and hearing some things out of Jacob's lips, here's what Laban says to him. Surely you are my bone and my flesh. 
what we see in this text is God's moral law of reciprocity developed through Jacob's relationships. In other words, Jacob reaps what he sows. And we see the overwhelming providence of God at work even in the midst of human failure. And all of these big things, they reflect God's grace to Jacob and they also serve to exhort us. They exhort us as readers of the story to walk in God's wisdom and not to walk in our own. You know, God still works today in the same way. He disciplines us for our sin. And he wants to transform us as his image bearers to a world he created which desperately needs to know his saving grace. He wants to transform us, his image bearers, to a world he created which desperately needs to know his saving grace. This is what God desires to do in the life of every Christian. And, get this, and God still providentially carries out his redemptive mission through us, even in the midst of our human failures. But as we'll see with Jacob, there are always consequences when we follow our own way over God's way. Let's read together, beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 29. Follow along as I read. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were all watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the mouth and well uh, and water the sheep, and then put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We're from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said to him, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks have gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Verse 10, Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that Rebekah's, and he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob in verse 15, Because you are my kinsman, should therefore you serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall be your wages? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I'll serve you seven years for your your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him as but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, 
Give me my wife that I may go into her, for the time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah and his daughter, uh, to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the mor- morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? And Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also. He loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. In the first scene, we see Jacob's arrival in Haran. We see this really in verses 1 through 14 after Jacob's encounter with God in chapter 28 where he has this theophany, a dream, and has God is. God reveals himself to Jacob and communicates with Jacob. Verse 1 says that he continues on his journey. Jacob's been a man on the run. He's running from a deceitful past, but also running to find a wife. And so verse 1 literally reads in the beginning, it says, Jacob lifted up his feet. In other words, this kind of hints at Jacob's having a a new outlook on life, right? We begin chapter 29 where it seems that he he has a pep in his step as he gets up and he, he begins to move forward in this journey toward Haran. But you know, as we continue reading, we learn that conflict isn't far off. In fact, the next 20 years will be filled with conflict for Jacob. As he nears Haran, he sees a well in the field at a distance. And this is reminiscent of an earlier chapter where we saw a man coming to find a woman for a man, for a young man at a well. It's reminiscent of the Genesis 24 episode where Abraham's servant has journeyed to Haran to find a wife for Isaac, and in the midst of doing so, he finds Rebekah. As the scene unfolds, Jacob approaches the well and he encounters these three shepherds waiting for the other shepherds to arrive so they can all water their flock together. And in the midst of the conversation, he actually discovers that he's near Haran. He didn't know it before. And he also discovers that Laban, his mother's brother, the son of Nahor, is doing well. While speaking with the man, men, lo and behold, Rachel shows up. Rachel arrives with her father's sheep and Jacob is just taken back by her beauty. He's captivated. It's it's like love at first sight. He's immediately attracted to Rachel. And so in verse 10, he takes it upon himself to exert some brute strength. And this large rock that three men couldn't move, all of a sudden he goes and he picks it and he moves and he rolls it away from the mouth of the well. That he didn't stop there. He, He then draws water out of the well and he goes to water Rachel's sheep then he kissed Rachel and wept aloud how's that for an introduction right and then he told her that he was her cousin so he goes to tell her father she goes to tell her father the good news and in verses 13 and 14 Laban runs out to greet him hugs him and kisses him and invites him into the house 
Now, if we read this story just at face value, it sounds like a great introduction. Sounds like things are going really well for Jacob at this point. But then when we take note of Genesis 24, the other story at the well that the author wants us to to draw back on and to remember, we begin to note that things are occurring differently here than they did there when Abraham's servant brought Rebekah back to Isaac. And when we read the accounts in comparison, several important points stand out. For instance, in Genesis 24, Abraham was adamant that his servant not bring Isaac back to Haran, 24-6. But see, on the other hand, Jacob, he's ventured to the land of Haran alone as a consequence of his sin. In chapter 24, verse 10, the details that Abraham's servant took uh, uh, 24.10 tell us that Abraham's servant took 10 camels with him along on the journey, and then he took also, he also took all sorts of choice gifts. He took money. All of these things were brought as a dowry to pay the bride-to-be's price. Well, Jacob has come to Haran empty-handed. All he has is the clothes on his back, and although he's searching for a wife, he has no way to pay the traditional dowry. We continue comparing Abraham's servant arrives in the evening time, which would be the right time to be around the well. And he waits and he offers a a petitionary prayer to the Lord, casting his dependence for success on the Lord's care, saying, God, you'll give me success. He demonstrates, Abraham's servant demonstrates a spiritual sensitivity to God at work. And he observes more than just outward beauty in Rebecca. He observes the inward character, a woman of character. While Jacob, on the other hand, he he offers no prayer. Immediately, he's captivated by Rachel's beauty, and without pausing, he, he doesn't take any note of her character. And then again, in chapter 24, verse 21, it says that the servant was quiet to discern whether Rebekah was the woman that God intended for him to take back to Isaac. While Jacob, Jacob just runs ahead in the story. He takes no time to discern if if. Rachel is the woman that God has for him. Then, in chapter 24, Rebekah waters the ten camels of Abraham's servant, while in Genesis 29, who does the watering? Jacob. He waters Rachel. See, the roles have been reversed here. And finally, when the family receives Abraham's servant in Genesis chapter 24, Abraham's servant immediately begins to offer praise to God, while Jacob, upon being received by the family, offers no praise to God. Now, the point of this comparison is that from from all of this, we see that Jacob, and we can read with hindsight and see that Jacob is unwittingly experiencing God's providence of provision. As he's going through his day, God is certainly watching over Jacob, but we also can see the gaping holes in Jacob's faith. He had a long way to go in the process of, of transformation. In fact, Jacob's chance meeting with Rachel will lead him to extreme hardships over the years. And God's providence will actually be the means of discipline for transforming Jacob's character. You know, the focus of the story here is on God's providence. God's providence in contrast with Jacob's prayerlessness. One commentator says, Under the Lord's good hand, 
Jacob meets the right shepherds at an unusual but providentially arranged time. And while he was still talking with them, his bride-to-be happens to come along. Well, in contrast to Abraham's servant, Jacob's conduct here is framed as self-willed. It's it's self-dependent in his relation to God. And I want to challenge us at this point here. Because I I think we can do well and should do well to take inventory in regard to our relationship with God. Does the pattern of Jacob's life seem familiar to you? Where you're simply resting on trusting in God's providence, but not, not imitating what the servant of Genesis 24 is showing us, the prayerful approach and dependence on God, but instead just going through the day not giving a second thought to God's direction, not communing with our Father in prayer, depending upon Him as we, as we walk through our day. Perhaps Jacob's trust in God's promise led him to assume God's favor upon him instead of driving him to pray for success in his journey. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, he says this. You can follow the quote on the screen The gate of heaven stood open over his life. And it was true and would remain true, but not as expected. This third patriarch needed some substance. He needed some trimming. He needed needed a, a compassionate spirit. He needed to experience some pain. He needed to learn humility. He needed some added dimensions to his character. He needed to grow in faith. He needed to stop trusting in himself. And this is precisely what God is doing in Jacob's life. I want to ask you this morning, have you experienced God working in your life in a similar fashion? I mean, it stands to reason that if if God works to shape Jacob in this way, Jacob, a patriarch of Israel, the one whose name becomes Israel, the one who fathers the 12 tribes of Israel, might he not work in your life in my life through circumstances and hardships to teach us a thing or two about dependence on him, to teach us a thing or two about compassion, humility, growth in godliness and Christ-likeness. The journey of faith, listen, the journey of faith is always sweeter the nearer we walk with Christ. It's always sweeter. In the second scene, we see that the deceiver is deceived. The deceiver is deceived. The first 14 verses, uh, through maybe 14a, the first half of of 14, it it takes place over about 24 hours, right? But then from that second half of verse 14 through the end of chapter 31, verse 55, this is the next 20 years of Jacob's exile in Haran. And his story, it screams out to us. It screams out saying the way that we conduct our life is significant. It says actions have consequences. And in verse 15, we gain a little bit more insight into Laban's character. Read in verse 15 with me. He says, Because you are my kinsman, Laban says to Jacob, Should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Right, so so Laban is cunning. It would have been no problem for Jacob to serve for no wages since he was family. 
But here in this moment, Laban begins to think about how he can swindle Jacob, how he can make the most use of him. His smooth talk reveals that Jacob has met his match. We also learn a little more about Laban and his family. We learn about his two daughters. Leah, the older sister, lacked the good looks of her younger sister, Rachel, who was beautiful in form and in appearance, it says. It says that Leah's eyes were weak, which is another way of saying that she wasn't very pretty. That's what he's saying. That's what the author is saying. And so in verses 18 and 20, 18 through 20, Jacob names his wages, right? He says, I'll work for seven years to marry Rachel. And in verse 20, it says that the seven years of service only seemed like a few days to Jacob. Now, there's been seven years that have passed at this point in verse 20. And by this time, Jacob has become aware of Laban's manipulative ways. In fact, in verse 21, it says that he demands that Laban make good on his end of the agreement. He has to go to Laban and say, hey, look, it's time. I've served my time. Now it's time for you to give me my wife. And then Laban puts on this great feast. And in the midst of this feast, the wine pours freely. And unfortunately, Jacob isn't prepared for what's about to go down. The anticipation of this day, the longing for this day, has been, it's been building for seven years now, and in his excitement, it seems that he's drank too much, only to wake up the next morning and discover that he's been duped, that Laban has given him Leah, the older sister, as his wife instead of Rachel. Can you imagine? You've worked for seven years. I mean, you've been passionate about this. But all the time that you've worked and been preparing and loving and wanting to move forward with this marriage and this spouse, and then all of a sudden, it was ripped out from under him. I wonder at what point he realizes that he and Laban are exactly alike. Jacob leaves the bridegroom chamber. He heads straight to Laban's residence. Verse 25 says, he confronts Laban. I served you for Rachel. Why have you deceived me? You know, these words are eerily familiar. In Genesis chapter 27, verse 35, Isaac, Jacob's father, said these words to Esau. After after Jacob had stolen the birthright, Esau came in. And Isaac said, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. It's the same word that's used when Jacob asked Laban, why have you deceived me? And here, Isaac tells Esau in 27.35, your brother deceived you. It seems that Laban is a man out for himself. Laban is a man who doesn't care who who he uses to get over on others. He's a a great showman, but he's cunning and he's deceitful. So Laban swindles Jacob by using his oldest daughter to garner another seven years of service from Jacob. You know, it's interesting that the only thing we learn about Leah and Rachel in the story, we learn nothing about their character. Here we just learn about physical appearance. So Laban uses Leah as a pawn. Leah becomes a pawn in her daddy's scheming. 
And because of that, think about the implications. Leah is subjected to an unloving marriage for the rest of her life. Laban's selfish actions pit his two daughters, Leah and Rachel, in a jealous rivalry against one another for the rest of their lives. Verses chapters 30 and 31 tell us all about it. And in the midst of all of this, listen, in the midst of all of this, we see God's providence and grace displayed. You might say, well, how do we see that here? Well, take Leah, for example. Leah, the unloved daughter and unloved wife, becomes the mother of the tribes of Levi and of Judah. Now, who are the Levites in the history of Israel? They were the priests. They went to God on behalf of man and went to man on behalf of God. They were were the one who interceded on behalf of the nation of Israel before God. That's an important role, isn't it? Not only that, Moses comes from the tribe of Levi. Moses is a descendant of the unloved Leah. When you think about the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Judah becomes the line through which David, King David, And ultimately, Christ, our Savior, is born. Here's an unloved woman looking for love, wanting love maybe from her dad, not getting it, wanting love from a husband, not getting it. But God sees fit to use her in the grand scheme, in his divine plan, to bring about the tribes of Levi and of Judah. What incredible grace. What incredible grace. You know, God does that. He takes the mess and the human failures that we are, and he works providentially and graciously through us and uses us for his glory, for our good ultimately, but for his glory. We think about Jacob, even through the hardships of a 20-year exile in Haran, God is with Jacob. In the end, Jacob comes out of Haran on his way back to the promised land with great wealth, despite Laban's wicked intentions. And we'll see more about that in chapters 30 and 31. But but the deceitful road that Jacob has paved isn't an easy road. You know, the Lord looks down on Jacob. And just as God looks down on Jacob, so he looks down on the nation of Israel as they sojourn for 400 years in Egypt, and God brings them out of Egypt with great wealth as they plunder the Egyptians. And so he looks upon his church. He looks upon us. God has redeemed us out of a world of sin and death, and he's done it through the cross of Christ. And though we two, like Jacob, are undeserving of God's great riches in Christ because we have all sinned against the holy and sovereign God of the universe, he looks upon us with grace. He looks upon us with grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the reason is because Christ took our punishment so that we might have his righteousness. You see, the Jacob story teaches us that neglect leads to loss Selfishness leads to victimization, victimization of self, victimization of others, and sin leads to death. It does. 
God's law of moral reciprocity can't be escaped. Marie D. Agolt said, when one has smashed everything around oneself, one has also smashed oneself. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, Paul says it like this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his, to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The question we have to ask ourselves this morning as we face the mirror of God's Word is what are we sowing? Are we sowing to the Spirit which brings life and peace? Or are we sowing to the flesh which brings death and destruction? The Jacob story is more than a moralistic lesson in living. The reality of the Christian calling is that we are called to holiness. It's that we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We can't be good enough to please God. And we all see ourselves in some way, or should see ourselves in some way, in the characters of Laban, or Jacob, or Leah, or Rachel. We long for a sense of of being someone. We long for a sense of being loved. We long for a sense of being important. But God's providential provision for his people is a provision of love. It's a provision of belonging, the provision of of identity. It's all realized in the incredible gift of our salvation through Jesus Christ. He's called us to holy living. God has called us to walk in pursuit of him. And this can only be done through the saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Ronald Rollheiser, in his book, The Holy Longing, he speaks of the human dilemma at this point. He says, we want to be saints, but we also want to feel every sensation experienced by sinners. We want to be innocent and pure, but we also want to be experienced and taste all of life. We want to serve the poor and have a simple lifestyle, but we also want the comforts of the rich. We want to have the depth afforded by solitude, but we also do not want to miss anything. We want to pray, but we also want to watch television, read, talk to friends, and go out. Friends, as Paul so lovingly wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Listen, God is always at work in my life for my good, and for his glory. Do you know this to be true? Christian, do you find yourself in the trappings of living for self and presuming upon God's grace so that your prayer life has become ineffectual? Christian, do you find yourself now living in the consequences of sin? The call for you is to repent, to return to God, Christian, are you sowing to the spirit or sowing to the flesh? The journey of faith is much sweeter when we walk with Jesus in God's way 
and not in our own way. This morning, has God brought to mind someone you have wronged in the past? Then perhaps the corrective action for you is to repent and seek forgiveness from that person. Friend, are you lost in the difficult circumstances of life? Lost without purpose? Longing for belonging? Looking for identity? Looking for love and don't know which way to turn? Let me exhort you this morning to turn to Christ. For in Christ we find a love that is greater than any earthly love we can begin to fathom. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a time of singing, and we're going to continue to worship as we partake of the Lord's table this morning. This morning, if you have realized that you don't have a relationship with Christ, I'd love to speak with you about what it means to surrender your life to Christ. Me or one of the elders would speak with you after service this morning. Uh, over here on this side of the worship center by the cross. We want to talk with you and help you to understand or answer any questions you might have about what it means to surrender your life to Jesus. Uh, but it's, it's simple. If the Lord is leading you and calling you, then it looks like going to him in prayer, confessing that he is Lord, repenting of your sin, and surrendering your life to Jesus. That's what it, that's what it takes to surrender your life to Christ, to become a Christian, a follower of Christ. And so we'd love to talk with you about, about doing that this morning if, if the Lord is leading and working in your life in that way. But let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that as we read this story about Jacob and his life, we can enter into this story and see how you providentially work in so many ways behind the scene that we oftentimes, like Jacob, never even give you credit for but just assume. So, Lord, let us guard, help us to guard against being presumptuous. Help us to guard against an apathy and a complacency in our devotion to you. And, Lord, let us be like the servant of Abraham who is dependent on you and petitioning you for success in all of his way. Let that describe us, O oh Lord. And I pray, Father, that you would strengthen us as your servants to walk faithfully with you, to grow in your likeness. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?